You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. A couple of weeks into the book of Hebrews, and I've had a couple of comments, not surprising at all. Uh, maybe you've thought this and haven't said it, but the book of Hebrews, if you've been with us, can be a challenging read. As we've already discovered in just the first three chapters, this is a book chock full of quotations from the Old Testament. It also makes many references to traditions and practices of the ancient Israelites. And for these reasons, including the fact that I just used the word ancient, It can be easy to write off this book as interesting, perhaps, but otherwise distant and irrelevant to our lives today. And yet, if you were with us last week, the writer of this book directly encouraged those who he was first writing to, and by extension, you and me, not to think this way, not to perceive that what he is sharing has nothing to do with us. Instead, we were cautioned last week to learn from the lessons of the past, from those who've gone before us. So when we open this book of the Bible, we're not reading someone else's mail. We're not looking from afar into the life of a community all that different from our own. No, what is being shared through this book, as we'll continue to see, remains timely. Timeless, we might even say, as we continue together to seek to be the church. And I I think the truth of what I've just said is really going to come home for us today with the word that we're about to receive. As I hope that you soon realize, we live at a time in this world when what we're going to hear today, we're in need of this message, I think, more than ever. And with that, if you've got Hebrews 4 open, let's read the first 13 verses together. They're on the screen if you want to follow along. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. He did this when a long time ago he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. 
For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Before we enter into this, let me just recap, if you haven't been with us, where we've been. In the first two and a half chapters of this letter, the writer exhorted us to recognize how Jesus is greater than anyone else, any human prophet, any heavenly angel, even better than Moses. And chapter three rounded out with this strong exhortation not to give up our confidence in Christ, therefore, and to hold on to Jesus firmly to the end. In fact, in chapter 3, to underscore this, underscore this point of holding on, not letting go, the writer references Psalm 95, which we also heard in chapter 4. He's still quoting from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is one of the hits from the book of Psalms. It recounts the tragic story, the cautionary tale of an entire generation of the children of Israel, our ancestors in the faith, who wandered in the wilderness up until the day of their deaths. Newly freed from slavery in Egypt, having passed through the waters of the Red Sea to salvation, the first generation of the Exodus perished in the desert. Why? As we learned last week and we heard repeated again today, because of their stubborn unwillingness to believe and to trust in God's ability to provide for them, to guide them to their new home, despite all they had witnessed, all they had experienced. Specifically at the end of chapter three, we are told what they missed was they missed entering into God's rest. And now, as you heard, as we dive into chapter four, the writer continues to draw from Psalm 95 as he expands on this notion of God's rest. I don't know if you were counting, but eight times in the verses we just read, we hear the word rest. Now, I will acknowledge, and even reading it the second time from last service, this passage out loud, just reading it out loud, let alone reading it silently, this is a passage that's a bit confusing as well as repetitive. But, and if you found that as we were reading it, like what the heck is this guy talking about? Everything we just read in those 13 verses can be boiled down to this single idea or theme. It's all about this. Enter his rest. Enter his rest. It begins with the declaration. The promise of entering his rest still stands and immediately is followed by the encouragement not to fall short of it, not to miss out on this rest that the Lord offers to us. And that begs the question, what exactly is this rest, his rest that the author is talking about? And the thing is, what makes this part of the letter a little bit confusing is the author uses the word rest in a couple of different ways, just in in these 13 verses. A couple of different ways that interrelate to each other but need to be separated from each other. So let's break that down really quickly of the different ways the author talks about rest in this passage. The first way the author talks about rest is in terms of entering the promised land. In verse 3, there's that reference from Psalm 95 of the Lord declaring an oath in his anger that they shall never enter my rest. This is a reference back to the Lord cautioning, again, the Exodus generation, the children of Israel, that if they keep rebelling, they'll always be wandering. They'll be forever restless. So this first mention of rest has to do with the entering the promised land. And we can relate to this in a general sense because we know what it's like. We know that it's hard to rest, that we can't truly settle down 
when we're occupying someone else's space. It's all well and good to be a guest in someone else's home, to be renting a place, but there's something significantly different when we, move from ha- we go from having to move from place to place when our lives no longer have this sense of being transitory, our sense of community is up in the air, and instead we have the feeling of being grounded. The rest that's being spoken of here, of getting to Cana, is about the physical and social rest of receiving a land, a home of one's own. This is the kind of rest where we are given a place to hang our hat, a place where we can settle down rather than always having to be on the move. The rest, first kind of rest that this writer is invoking is the rest that Dorothy once spoke of upon her return from Oz when she said, quite simply, there's no place like home. That's the first way that rest is used, this idea of a sense of place, a sense of community, a sense of permanence of where you can can occupy, a place you can occupy. But there's another way that rest is used that you probably picked up on a little bit more easier. It's when the author talks about how God rested from his work at the beginning of creation. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're told that after God created all life as we know it, God rested from his work. What we also should remember is that the idea of rest being invoked from Genesis is not this idea that God worked and then rested in order to be revitalized or somehow restored because he found himself weary or exhausted. Our eternal creator doesn't ever tire or become depleted like we do. God doesn't need to rest. So in what sense, back in Genesis being invoked here in Hebrews, in what sense did God rest from his work? Well, if we go back and look at Genesis chapter 2, we discover, looking at the context of that, that the sense that God rested, God rested in the sense that he was satisfied with his work. In other words, God looked upon all he had done and said it was good. We hear that repeatedly in the book of Genesis. In other words, God rested in the sense that he, creation was finished to our creator's satisfaction. God rested in the sense that he was pleased with what he had done the Lord stopped to enjoy his handiwork. And in doing this, by resting in this way, God in that moment creates the possibility of this kind of rest for us. In fact, as you know, much later on, the Lord even commands us to rest in this way, to experience the satisfaction, not of what we try to accomplish, but to experience the satisfaction of what has been accomplished for us by the grace of God. The Lord carves out a seventh day, something biblically known as the Sabbath, an intentional, consistent space for us to physically, emotionally, mentally stop what we're doing and to recognize the goodness, to find contentment in all the Lord has done and continues to do for us. So those are the two aspects of rest that are first invoked by the writer here, but there's a third final element of rest that really these first two are pointing to for this author. They're pointing to this third ultimate rest. This rest, this third rest, this ultimate rest, which the writer of Hebrews has in view is telling us to be sure we enter into, encompasses both of these, the first two that I just talked about. This third and ultimate rest encompasses being grounded with a home, being settled in a community. It includes the emotional and mental satisfaction of daily being provided for. But this third and final rest, this ultimate rest, also goes well beyond both of these things. This third and final rest that the author is pointing to is the deeper rest, if you will, the cosmic rest 
the spiritual rest that makes all things new. This is the rest born of the gospel. Listen carefully to verses two and three, how the writer tells us this. The writer says, for we also have had the good news, the gospel proclaimed to us just as they did. He's talking about the Exodus generation. But the message that was heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, that rest, that rest, the one which all the others anticipated, that rest, the one which we are being invited to enter into, that rest, the one the Lord calls mine, is the rest we find in the Lord through being in relationship with Jesus Christ. That rest is the forgiveness of our sins, being at peace with God, being at peace with ourselves, being at peace with each other. That rest is having no more fear of death, be it physical dying or any other form of failure or termination. That rest is knowing that resurrection is not only possible, but promised to us. That rest is the assurance that all that is is not all that will be, that there will be an answer to all our troubles, that every wrong will be righted, that there is hope and a future for us. That rest is the deep, cosmic, everlasting rest Joshua could not provide, only Jesus could. That rest is the rest Jesus extends to us through the giving of his own life, through the giving of the Holy Spirit. That rest, the writer and you hear the tension there, and I don't know if you picked up on it, the rest is both present to us, it's a state of being, the writer says, we can enter into now, today, and yet at the same time, the writer frames it in verses eight through 11 as a rest that while we can enter into it today is also something that we must strive to continue to enter into into the future. There's this sense of something we can enter into now, and yet there's also this pointing the writer makes to the work of Christ being fully realized, come full circle with the dawn of a new heavens and a new earth. But the rest that we are being encouraged not to forsake, to enter into, is the rest of the gospel, the rest of Christ. That's the rest we must value and not fall short of. And understanding this, kind of breaking it down, the next obvious question is how? How do we enter this rest? And the answer we're given, if you were listening, is very simple. But it's an answer to which we must commit ourselves daily. And what is that answer? How do we enter into this rest, his rest? by believing, by faith. We've heard this answer before in this letter and spoiler alert, you're gonna keep hearing it because living by faith is one of the central themes of this entire letter. How do we enter into his rest? We believe, we have faith. We have to believe, we have to take God at his word. We have to embrace that word as it's offered to us in the flesh, in Christ. And then we have to rest upon that word by following Jesus, by living in relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. In a nutshell, that is the journey of faith. When we talk about being on the journey of faith, that's it. Taking God at his word, embracing that word as it's offered to us in Christ, and then resting upon that word by following Jesus, being in living relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna unpack this a little bit more, the how in terms of entering this rest for us in just a few moments. But first, let's wrestle with the why. Let's wrestle with the why, why rest? And for some of us, that may seem unnecessary. That may seem sort of obvious. 
the why of we, why, why we should rest. Because I think we can all agree in whatever form it takes, but certainly in this ultimate sense, rest is fundamental to our human condition. It's essential to our lives, to joy, to fulfillment, let alone just our basic survival, right? So why do we need to talk about the why of rest? Because if we learn anything from this passage, and more specifically from the example that this writer keeps pointing back to in Psalm 95, it's this. Just because we hear the good news, just because we know the gospel, does not mean we believe it, does not mean we trust it, does not mean we live our lives out of it. Case in point offers the writer, consider the Exodus generation, the children of Israel. Notice what he says. They heard the promises of God. They witnessed what the Lord had done for them. And they still didn't believe. They weren't willing to follow where the Lord was leading them. And they ended up floundering so close to the finish line instead of entering the rest that God was offering them. Listen again to these chilling words from verse two. But the message they heard, the gospel, the good news, the message they heard was of no value to them. My friends, how about us? Is this message, is the gospel of value to us? I expect all of us internally, if not externally, are nodding our heads saying, yes, that's why we're here. Of course it has value to us. But what we're being pushed on here is not just what we say, but how we live. Does the good news have value to us? Are we entering the rest we have been offered in Christ? Are you entering the rest that you have been offered in Christ? Something I wonder if you noticed, how the writer associates entering his rest, this rest of God, the rest of the gospel, with the practice of Sabbath. Did you catch that? The writer intentionally, when he makes this very powerful statement in this passage, there remains then, he could have said a rest for the people of God, but he says a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did his. The writer wants us to be mindful of the Sabbath. And if you haven't been with us for a while, last year, for those of you who do remember, we did a whole sermon series on the Sabbath, including an opportunity for a little Q&A at the end. And what I found interesting about our time together exploring that topic is how many people in our community remained fixated on identifying a specific day, an exact period of time that was supposed to be considered Sabbath. A lot of us just wanted to know where the line between our work and our rest had to begin and end. I mean, all the same questions kept coming up. Well, what's enough rest? What's enough rest? And what's too much work? And what counts as rest? And well, what counts as work? And I will repeat something that I tried to convey through the word of God last time again. Here's the thing <laughs> in the midst of how we ask these questions that this is where we get fixated. God created the Sabbath, the space and time to rest for our benefit not for his. Jesus said it himself, the Sabbath was made for humanity. Humanity wasn't made for the Sabbath to somehow give God something to do. The the Lord made the Sabbath for us and the Lord later made the Sabbath a law 
with specific parameters because we, like all children, need structure. We need a benchmark in order to learn and to practice something, right? If you've been a child, if you've ever been a child, and everyone in this room has been a child at some point, when you were a child, if your mom and dad just told you to regularly brush your teeth, how'd that work for you? Right. Regularly brush my teeth. Whoop, whoop, never happened. Your parents knew this. Your parents knew this. To get a child to regularly brush their teeth, you have to designate a specific time, a place, and a ritual for doing so, so that hopefully they internalize the practice and brush and floss after every meal. But let's be honest, just like with the Sabbath, some of us have grown up as children into adults who basically, in the same way we are with the Sabbath, we are about brushing our teeth. Well, how long do I have to brush my teeth? And what counts as brushing my teeth? Like if I just use mouthwash and rinse it in my, does that count? And I mean, and where, what parts of my mouth do I have to get? And you know, this is, this is the thing. What God outlines as the Sabbath for us, as a law, is a starting point. It's an example for us because we need that starting point, because we need that structure, because we need something codified for us. But if we confuse that starting point, that baseline as being it, when we get caught up in where the line is and how far before we cross that line, we're missing what the Sabbath is all about. And more importantly, what this passage is revealing, we're missing the one to whom the Sabbath always was intended to point. The rest that God invites us into, in other words, isn't a transaction. It's not about just stop what you're doing and just settle down for an hour and a day. Okay, you're good now. The rest that God invites us into isn't a transaction. The rest that God invites us to enter into is a rhythm, a posture, an orientation of wholly relying upon him. Not once every seven days, not for a set period of time, but wholly relying on him all the time, all of our days. Because what we learn in this passage is the Sabbath, the rest that God invites us to enter is about a relationship with him. It's about abiding in the work he has done and continues to do for us in Jesus Christ. Now, all of us are here because we profess, we believe in that work. We believe in his work. We believe in the work of the incarnation. We just celebrated it at Christmas time. We believe in the work of the cross and the resurrection. We believe in the work of the spirit, the work of the spirit continuing to shape and power and transform us. We profess, we believe it. But are we resting in that work of Christ? Are we doing and being not out of our own strength, our own brilliance, our own will? Are we doing and being out of what Jesus has done? of what Jesus is doing in and through us. There's a simple way to, to see if that's the case. It's not an easy way, but it's a simple way. We have to just stop right here and right now and ask ourselves, ask yourself, what defines you? What defines you? When you introduce yourself to other people, I want you to dig deep here, how you present yourself. When you write to other people, when you convey your self-image, what defines you? From where does our identity and value as a person come? And if your answer 
is you are defined by any or all of the roles you occupy. If our answer is our identity and our value comes from any or all of the roles we occupy as a son or daughter, as a spouse or as a parent, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a citizen, if that's where our identity and our value comes from, then we've got it all backwards. We've got it all dangerously wrong. If your identity and value comes from any or all of the roles you occupy, what are you going to do when those roles no longer exist? Who will you be? And this is why we lose our minds when all of a sudden we're forced into retirement. Because if we're the job and we don't have a job, then who are we? That's why we struggle when all of a sudden our marriage falls apart or God forbid our spouse dies. If we are the spouse and yet we have no one there, who are we? This is why when our children no longer want to be close to us or we're in conflict or when a friendship breaks up, if that's who we are, if that's where our identity and value comes from, we fall apart. But my friends, who you are, your value as a human being is not defined by what you do. It cannot be. Because on our own, I don't care how adept you think you are, we can't do it all. On our own, we can't save ourselves. Isn't that why we're here today? Because we recognize on our own, we can't save ourselves. And the thing is, even when we profess that, even when we confess, we say, oh, I believe it. It's all about grace. It's all about Jesus. And yet we say it, and yet we live differently. Even when we say that and we try to better ourselves, we try to save ourselves, we always end up doing it at someone else's expense. By ourselves, we are incapable of loving perfectly and acting justly. If the good I try to do, best of intentions, but if the good I try to do is so that I can feel good about myself, so that I can construct or maintain a self-image of being a good person, then what I'm doing is not good. It's selfish. It's self-serving. I'm not really loving you. I'm using you to try to love myself. If I'm always trying to do the right thing, and many of us are very big about doing the right thing with the best of intentions, if I'm always trying to do the right thing so I can prove myself, so that I can earn another person's approval, or so that I can gain superiority over someone else, then what I'm doing is not righteous. It's selfish. It's self-justifying. I'm not really acting justly for the good of everyone. I'm not doing what's right for the good of everyone. I'm manipulating the situation to get ahead for the betterment of me. My friends, when our identity and value come from our work, it's never enough. It's never enough. No matter how much we buy and spend, we're never, ever satisfied. Ask yourself, how much more do you need? How much more will you buy? How much more will you consume? Are you satisfied yet? 
No matter how many accolades, no matter how many titles, no matter how many degrees, no matter how many acknowledgments, no matter how many achievements we receive, we will still be plagued on our own by the need to do better, to work harder, to silence our deep unhappiness with who we are, that nagging feeling that I'm only as good as what I can produce. Is that where your identity and value come from? That you are only as good as what you can produce. Because if that's your identity, if that's your, where your value comes from, you're going to end up being captive, trying to pursue something you can never earn, you can never achieve on your own. Lasting meaning, true purpose, real contentment and deep peace. If that's where your identity comes from, if our identity and our value come from our work, we remain perpetually restless working so hard for that next promotion, that next bonus, that next vacation, that next milestone, that next trip, but in the end, finding ourselves just wandering from one thing to the next. My friends, beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us a different way to live. We are more than the jobs we hold. There is more to you than your work. You don't have to be haunted by perfectionism. We don't have to hide our flaws or deny our tiredness and our exhaustion at times. There is a Sabbath rest for the people of God and we can enter into it, into a relationship with the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. Instead of of working so hard to define ourselves and prove our worth, we are invited to rest in who we are in Christ. Are you resting in who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? In Christ, you are beloved, beloved. That's why I say that all the time. Because we are loved unconditionally, by Christ. That is who you are in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. Forgiven. The slate is clean. The slate, even of stuff you haven't done yet, you are forgiven. You have the freedom to fail, and failure will not define you. That doesn't mean you should go looking for failure, but that means you don't have to fear failure. You are forgiven in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever's happened to you, whatever's gonna happen to you, whatever's still coming that you aren't even aware of, you are redeemed in Christ. You will not be lost or forsaken. Do you know who you are in Christ? Are you resting out of that love, out of that forgiveness, out of that redemption? We are invited to rest in what Jesus has done and we are invited to rest in what Jesus continues to do for us. Jesus continues to grant us grace. Are you living out of grace in your life? Or are you striving still to prove that you're worthy? Jesus guides us into truth. Are you continuing to try to figure out the truth for yourself, to try to come up with your own truth? You don't have to work that hard. You can be guided into what's true, what's real. It's Jesus. You, Jesus seeks to empower us, empower us to bring life 
to extend hope to others. You see, that's the work that we're called to. It's not that there isn't work for us to do, but the work that we need to trade in is the work that we have to try to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to defend ourselves, to somehow merit ourselves before others. That's not the work that, that, that satisfies. That's not the work that gives us life. Jesus gives us love, gives us forgiveness, redeems us so that we can do the work that satisfies us and transforms the lives of others. We are empowered to bring life. That's the work you're called to. That's the work that we're called to share in together, to bring life. We're called to extend hope to others. Rather than live in fear, we're called to be beacons of hope to others who think they don't have any. And in the midst of all of it, we don't have to work so hard to worry if we're going to make it to where we want to get to. Because in the midst of the work to which God's called us, Jesus also says he's carrying us home. So you don't have to keep wondering if you're not going to make it. You don't have to keep wondering, am I going to get there? You don't have to keep wondering, I'm not sure where it is. Jesus knows and Jesus is carrying you so that you can do the work that he's called you to. And that work doesn't define you. See, this is where we get it backwards. When our identity and our value come out of our work, it's just a, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. It's never enough. But instead, when our identity and our value come out of Christ, then that's how we live into the work that we're called to do. Not because we're trying to earn anything, not because we're trying to achieve anything, not because we're trying to justify anything, but because we have been justified, because we have been redeemed, because we have been forgiven. And that gives us this incredible, inexhaustible power and strength and creativity and imagination where your work no longer has to be confined into the boxes that we often put them in. But instead, you can do anything that the Lord calls you to. You can fail. You can fail boldly. You can try. It's an complete reversal in terms of how we're living. And just because we think about this rest that awaits us, just because the fullness and completion of this rest we have been promised in Christ is something future, something we can look forward to only when Jesus returns, doesn't mean we can't enjoy and can't rest in the here and now. Hear the author as he talks about a rest that is coming, but also a rest we can enter into today. The writer is telling us that we can and we should consciously, are you conscious, consciously receive and gratefully appreciate the countless blessings the Lord pours out on us in this life and in this world. Are you living out of that place or are you living out of a place of fear? Are you living out of a place of it's not enough? Ask yourself, what's it going to take for it to be enough if what Jesus has given us isn't enough? To abide and live out of the blessings rather than to exist out of a constant state of fear and worry is how we experience a foretaste of the ultimate rest that we can look forward to on the other side of the horizon. We have to relish the blessings. And that leads us back to that question we talked about briefly. How? How do we enter into his rest? And I told you before that the answer to how is simple. We heard it. We must believe. We must walk by faith. But I also said that this is an answer to which we must commit ourselves daily. And in order to appreciate what that means, we have to look at the final verses of this passage. And the final verses of this passage, if you were reading along with me, at first they seem really out of place. There's all this talk about rest, and then all of a sudden that shows up. And at first it seems totally out of place in terms of what the writer has been talking about. But in fact, in these final two verses, this is the clue as to how to commit ourselves daily to what we believe. How we can walk one step at a time by faith. And in short, the way to summarize this, what the writer is saying, 
How do we believe? How do we walk one step at a time by faith? We have to be in the word. We have to be in the word. And before we go any further here, when I say that the writer is saying we have to be in the word, I mean more than for many of us what we mean by being in the word. This is more than devotional time in the morning, as great as that is to get your encouraging thought for the day. Being in the word, as the writer means it here, is more than Bible study, which is awesome, more than coming away with some new insider knowledge about scripture and about yourself. What the writer is getting at, these, these verses are very, very powerful, right? What the writer means by being in the word is that we have to let the word and spirit of God read us before we read this. The writer is getting at when he says being in the word is allowing the word of God to strip us down naked spiritually. To open up the word of God and to let the word of God cut us to the core, exposing all the places where we are avoiding, where we are hiding, where we are compensating, revealing all those internal disconnects between what we say we believe and how we're actually living. We need to be in the word like this because the natural condition of the human heart is to forget the truth of the gospel and to turn inward towards self-improvement and self-justification. And we become particularly vulnerable to this temptation whenever we experience failure or criticism. Guys, can we be honest? Can we tell the truth here? We're in church, right? When something goes wrong in our lives, when something goes wrong in our lives, our default is not to rely on Jesus, at least not until we've exhausted every other option. Right? Yeah, we'll get there eventually, but we'll rely on Jesus after we've exhausted every other option. No, when something goes wrong in our lives, our default is to become fixers, to make more to-do lists. Oh, I can fix this. I guess I gotta get some more, there's more things I gotta do here. To work longer hours. Oh, I gotta just put in the time. I just gotta put a little bit more effort into this. We're fixers. When something goes wrong, we, we, we diagnose it. We're gonna, we can diagnose it. We're gonna workshop it. We can solve whatever the problem is by ourselves. Now, let me just say, this makes total sense, completely logical, when the problem is external, when we're talking about fixing a system, a process, a piece of equipment that needs to be mended. But when the problem is internal, running much deeper than the surface of our words and our actions, when the breakdown is what is going on in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, then all of our attempts to fix ourselves by self-motivating, by self-critiquing, by self-rewarding, by self-medicating, will make things worse, not better. Inevitably, we will find ourselves moved either to self-defeat and apathy, whatever, or moved to self-righteousness and protective arrogance. Yeah, well, at least I'm not as bad as you. At least my life's not as screwed up as yours. Either way, whether we end up in self-defeat or self-righteousness, both in their own way just leave us exhausted rather than energized. You are just tired all the time. 
My friends, unless we regularly confront our temptation, our incessant drive to be self-made, unless we daily lay down all of our tireless work at self-help, unless we surrender our every claim to personal achievement we think we have, we will not benefit from the work of Jesus on our behalf. Until we recognize and confess how radically unfit we are, to be our own saviors and lords, let alone anyone else's Messiah, unless we repeatedly come to grips with our restlessness, with our desperate and absolute need for Jesus, we will not fully enter the rest that God in Christ sets before us. And we cannot see all of this. We will not see everything I just said unless it is revealed to us again and again and again by the word and the spirit. We have to keep returning back to the gospel. We have to keep coming back to the one who says, come to me. Stop trying to do that by yourself. What do you, come to me and I will give you rest. We have to keep returning to the gospel. We have to keep coming to the one who says, come to me in order to believe, in order to gain the power to walk by faith. This book, this letter, this sermon, whatever you want to call it, is written to first century urban people who, although well-grounded in their faith, have become weary of troubles and difficulties and are being tempted to give up altogether. Like them, we too live in a world where there is often no rest for the weary. Too many of us, too many of us, Believe we have to work and work and work and cannot afford to rest. You, there are some of you sitting here today who still, despite everything I've said, the entire sermon series on the Sabbath that we talked about, still are saying to yourself, I can't afford to rest. Too many of us exist in a default posture of being drained, tired, spent. Our shoulders are slumped. Our brow is furrowed. We sigh all the time. We just sort of lumber along. Too many of us find ourselves so worn out and exhausted all the time that we're starting to believe. We won't admit it out loud. We're starting to believe we can't go on even though we know we must keep going. Is that you today? Is that where you find yourself? You know you have to keep going, but you don't think you can go on. If any of this, in any shape or form, any shade, describes any inkling of something inside of you, Please hear the word of the Lord because we need to hear and receive more than ever one of God's greatest promises, God's welcome word of rest. Rest that is ours thanks to Jesus. I want to encourage you to start each day by finding your self-acceptance in being absolutely sure about who you are because of whose you are. I want to encourage you to start each day to find your self-acceptance by standing in Christ and in Christ alone and believing that in Christ you are gloriously complete. I want to encourage you to begin each leg of the journey of faith day after day by putting your trust, your delight, resting your identity and your worth not on whatever works you do or do not accomplish but to let your identity and value, your worth, rest on the accomplished, the finished, and yet still ongoing work of God.
the unconditional love and inexhaustible grace offered to us in Jesus. I want to encourage us each day to enter into the rest that is assured for us in Christ, this rest that will, even despite us, carry.